Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the podcast that looks at the money behind the beautiful game. With me, Kevin Day, an expert in football finance at Liverpool University, Kieran Maguire. Morning, Kieran. Morning, Kevin. How the devil are you? Uh, we've got no time for small talk this morning, uh, Kieran, because we have a lot to get through. It's questions day, but we've got some news to discuss first. I mean, we could just drop a couple of questions, Kieran, but that's not how we work. We're a public service, so uh, I like to think some of that 8pm applause on the doorstep was actually for us. So, um, <laughs> First big news story. Congratulations, of course, to Liverpool, uh, if not to some of their fans. But winning the league, I'm told, Kieran, may actually cost them money. Uh, yes, uh, whilst the uh, the Premier League is is paved with gold to a certain extent in terms of extra money coming in, winning the Premier League won't necessarily have brought Liverpool uh, huge rewards. So, so they do get an extra two and a half million pounds per place. So, therefore, compared to last year, that's uh, uh, if, and if we ignore the COVID issues, an extra two and a half million for being first as opposed to second. Um, there will be some sponsor bonuses, but I don't think they're necessarily to be huge. Um, and as you may have seen with, with the likes of Jurgen Klopp and some of the players being interviewed already, um, they, their uh, Premier League Champions 2019-20 merchandise has already gone on sale. So th- there's extra money coming in. But then you start to look at the extra money going out. And uh, I think player bonuses will more than eat up uh, most of that that extra prize money. Um, and then Jurgen Klopp himself is likely to uh, be, have a significant bonus. If you take a look at Claudio Ranieri for, for when, Liverpool, when Leicester won the Premier League in 2016, uh, he got five million quid for bringing them the, the Premier League trophy. And of course, Leicester were quite happy to sign off on that when they were negotiating his contract because, like the rest of the planet, they, they never thought it was going to take place. Yeah. Um, so so that's, that's the player side of things. But then it transpires that Liverpool, of course, have recruited many players and they've recruited extremely well. Um, and there will be sell-on clauses and bonus clauses Clauses, even. Clauses, uh, yes. Clauses, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know what happened there. And, and I'm the sober one. Um, I was say, imagine what you'd be like with a hangover. <laughs> um, so if we look at uh, if we look at Southampton, they, they've uh, they've sold to Liverpool uh, uh, Manet, Virgil Van Dyke, and, and Adam Lallana. And I think Adam yeah. Lallana's uh, issue is the most intriguing because. His contract was was due to expire on the 30th of June. So if Liverpool had won the Premier... So if Manchester City, for example, had won um, the match on Thursday against Chelsea, and if Lalana had not extended his contract for a month, it could have been the case that Liverpool would have won the Premier League in the first week in July, and they wouldn't have to go and pay however many... You know, it's likely to be hundreds of thousands, if not, uh, if not more to Southampton for one of the, the add-on right. clauses in his contract. So, so it all starts to get very small print, but you put those two things together yeah, in, in the form of player bonuses and fees due to, to other clubs, you know, and clearly the likes of Arsenal with, with Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain and so on, you know, they'll all be having a, a slice of that. So it's not just Liverpool who would have been celebrating them winning the Premier League on Thursday night. All right, so what you're saying basically is that, that Palace's resolute refusal to challenge for the Premier League trophy tri- title is actually a wise financial decision. Yes, 
Yes, yeah. I mean, it certainly was when Arsenal were under Wenger and they they were more than happy to finish fourth or third. Um, and Spurs Spurs got it absolutely right last season. Um, they got to the, the Champions League final, didn't win it, and finished in the top four. So, yeah, that in, in terms of uh, maximising, minimising your bonuses, um, that, that was very, very clever of them. Now, I'm going I'm to take you up on something there, Kieran, which I don't often do, especially when we're pushed for time. Um, we could we could do a three hour pod, Kieran, but let's face it, a lot of people would have gone by the end of it. But we are a little bit pushed for time, and I've just used more time by telling you we're pushed for time. But do, do you genuinely think that it was Arsene Wenger's policy to finish third or fourth, as some Arsenal fans who defended would would to have you think? Because it seems to me that that's just that was more of a handy excuse for saying we're not we're not actually good enough, or we're not going to spend money. Do you think it's a deliberate a deliberate thing? Like as long as we get in the Champions League, that's fine. No, no, he he would have wanted to have win to win trophies because um, we all want to get as as far in our careers as we can, and also the the emotional achievement that that ship has sailed, isn't it? <laughs> For both of us, <laughs> crikey! <laughs> it's Sunday afternoon. I'm in my shed, and you're in your. <laughs> Never mind. Carry on. <laughs> um, Arsene Wenger would have wanted to win trophies. The reason why Arsenal finished third or fourth was actually that he was quite hamstrung by the budget that he was given by the club. So Arsenal never really had, you know, apart from the, the years when they had the Invincibles, they had that incredible squad. When that squad ta- started to age um, and needed replacing with players of the same calibre, Arsenal simply weren't in a position to go out into the market and recruit. Yeah. Okay, now further down the table, the National League playoffs are happening. But again, there are some big financial risks involved. Do you know, you know one week here, what would be nice is if all our stories were, hopefully, every club has plenty of money. That would be great, wouldn't it? But then that would probably be the last pod we ever did. But so, so, so what are the financial risks of the playoffs happening? Well, um, if, if you take a look at the, the six clubs involved in the National League uh, playoffs, so we've got Barnet, Borehamwood, Halifax, Harrogate, Notts County and Yeovil. Um, those clubs have um, they, they had players whose contracts expired on the, the 30th of April. Remember when we spoke to, to Lee Worgan uh, from Dover and, and yeah. he was explaining that the, yeah. the National League does finish earlier. Um, so therefore, what they had to do is to effectively put the players into some quasi form of hibernation through the furlough scheme, then take them out of furlough. But some of the players have moved on. Some of the players, because of the uncertainty, have either said, yeah, we're looking for other jobs. We're, we're going, we've, we've taken a transfer elsewhere. Um, so we've got the costs of taking those players out of furlough. Um, they've got the costs of you know, putting them into training. And, and most of the clubs, I think, only went into training last Monday. Mm. Um, but some of those clubs, you know, Harrogate have only got a squad of 17 left uh, of, of, you know, because players have, have gone elsewhere. I think Barnet have got even fewer than that. So you know, the, all this talk about f- footballing integrity, tegrit- oh, my, my pronunciation is terrible to say, um, football integrity and a level playing field has gone out of the window because Notts County have they've got new owners from Denmark um, and they are desperate to get back into the, the mm. EFL um, and this is all fine and the National League playoffs are going to take place between the 18th and the 30th of July by all accounts um, and the winner of the playoffs has got no guarantee that they are going to be promoted so it could be a competition which is watched by nobody, which takes place at Wembley before nobody. Yeah, you then go. Yeah, I've I've won this sort of 
new comp this this particular uh, activity. Um, but unless the National League itself has a full season returning next season, the EFL have said. Well, we're not going to accept because we we are not willing to have twenty five teams in League Two next season. I don't see how they would have because we're we're short of Berry anyway, so we they wouldn't have. I don't see the maths there. Well, well, Barrow, remember, have won the the. Oh, of course, uh, I think you put Barrow. We're talking about the playoffs. Yes, of course. Um, and what and what what what's due to happen is that Stevenage are due to be relegated unless. Yes. The EFL yeah. or Stevenage themselves appeal against Mac- Macclesfield's yeah. points deduction. We don't know what's happening there. Um, so, are Stevenage going to go down? Are they going to be replaced by one of these six clubs who are all going to incur substantial costs? Remember, we've got the COVID testing costs as yes, well. Yes, of course. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it just seems to be uh, yeah, a huge fog. And I appreciate, you know, as, as we all do, that there are far bigger issues taking yeah. place today. But this is a football finance podcast, and these clubs are putting themselves at financial risk in in going in for this competition. Well, we'll keep an eye on that one. I mean, it, I think it's beholden. I mean, the EFL need to make a decision before the playoffs take place. I mean, that's the ludicrous notion. I mean, because I, I feel as well for Harrogate and Boreham Wood, no disrespect to Notts County and, and Barnet, but I get very excited by the notion of a new team getting into the league. And the idea of someone like Boreham Wood or Harrogate being in the league is is a fantastic one. So it'd be awful if it was snatched away from them in probably the only season they're ever going to get a chance to do it. Um, and before we move on, just you know, take a breath, Kieran, get your pronunciation sorted out because you, you can't be saying things wrong on Sky Sports later on, which <laughs> is one right. of the reasons we're a little bit pushed for time. Um, now, Juventus and Barcelona have agreed um, an eye-catching swap deal. And I'm, I'm slightly disappointed by this because I, I really wanted Arthur to go to Man United because the idea of a midfield that comprised Fred and Arthur was beyond <laughs> my childish imagination. But it, it looks like it's not going to happen. But this is a... this is a, a, a It's an odd thing to say about a swap deal, but it's a kind of big-money swap deal, isn't it? It, it's it's a big money swap deal on paper, um, which appears to generate between fifty and sixty million euros worth of profit for both clubs, who just happen to be in need of fifty to sixty million euros of profit um, ah, to comply uh-huh. with financial fair play. Not really. <laughs> so, so as usual, it's it's our silver tongued friends in the accounting world. Um, there's these two players. So, so Arthur is is 24. He's, he's a decent player. Yeah. Uh, I don't think he's necessarily ripping up trees. Um, and they're swapping him for Arthur. My, my pronunciation might be wrong on this one. Is it Pajanic? Pjanic. 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 Um, from Juve. Now, he's 30 and, and he's apparently uh, worth 60, 60 million euros. So that seems, that seems a pretty high price. Mm. Um but um, yeah, we, we have sort of vaguely discussed this in the past. When a player is sold, all of the profits are taken in the year of sale. But when you buy a player, they spread the cost of that transfer over a number of years via our old friend amortization. Yeah. So therefore, what this allows both Juve and Barcelona to do is to take a big profit. If, if those players had gone for thirty million and ten million, they'd still be yeah, ultimately a, a twenty million cash payment from um, 
uh, from Juve to Barcelona, but they wouldn't have booked as much profit and therefore it wouldn't have counted as much towards FFP. It's a bit like uh, me and you swapping a couple of books um, you know, uh, to, from, and I say, well, um, yeah, the net cost is five pounds. I'm going to charge you a hundred pounds for, for my book, and you're going to charge me one hundred and five for yours. And we both know that's complete bollocks. Well, no, if you told me to do it, I'd just go along with it. To be perfectly honest, but um, uh, so, so what you're implying is that this is not a case of the manager or the technical director of a football club saying, you know, this player would be a useful addition to our squad. You're implying that this is a, a clear ploy basically so so someone between these two clubs has come up with this this idea probably over a socially distanced coffee somewhere and and this is happening purely for financial reasons because if that's the case that's it's, it's a very cynical thing to do isn't it for to two young men's careers essentially yeah be they're going to good clubs both of them yeah i, I think they, they, there's there must have been approval from the coach. I don't think this would have been done without the coach's approval. Um, I, I just think that the, the values, and, and we might see more of this in terms of player swaps at unusually high values. Certainly when, if you take a look at uh, Mkhitaryan and Alexi Sanchez, that swap seemed to go through at, at pretty high values for, for two players who were effectively stinking, stinking out their particular clubs at the time. And, and that allows the clubs to book a profit on the deal as, as to instead of booking a loss. And, and that's, that's where my concern is. Um, it's, is it illegal? No, it's not. But is it, is it unusual? Do I feel comfortable with it? Certainly not either. Well, if you don't feel comfortable with something, Kieran, then there's definitely something fishy going on. Uh, you might have to explain that £105 book thing again to me sometime off air because I was having a big swig of tea at the time. And it's just <laughs> this is why I couldn't come up with a better answer. But um, Now, uh, final news story before we get on to some very interesting questions. Uh, according to the PFA, the, the EFL plans for a salary cap may be unlawful. And, and for new listeners, that's the Professional Footballers Association, the English Football League and unlawful. Um uh, and it might be worth some of you looking up the difference between illegal and unlawful. Um, illegal, Kieran, as you know, means you're you're basically sanctioned. You're not there is you're not allowed to do it. And unlawful means there's no law that says you can do it. Basically, so the PFA are not happy with the EFL plans for a salary cap. That's right. Um, by by all accounts, um, the the proposals at EFL meetings uh, that we're going to have. Uh, uh, a championship cap of eight, 16 to 18 million, League One, two and a half, uh, League Two, 1.25. Um, if that was the case, if, if, and we take a look at last year's uh, sets of accounts, it would have been only Millwall, Rotherham and Bolton who would have been below that uh, particular uh, cap of 18 million. And if you think that two of those clubs were subsequently relegated, mm-hmm. uh, that just leaves uh, Millwall and, uh, you know, God bless my... Uh, my old uncle, in respect of being one of their lads, uh, in, in terms of that. Um, so it's, it's going to be a real challenge. And the, the PFA have said, well, hold on, there's always talk about the salary cap. Nobody's talking to us. Um, we're, we're not happy about it because clearly it has implications for our members. Um, they, they've pointed at the breaches of salary caps uh, by Saracens in rugby union and yeah. rugby league as well. 
Um, and, and their argument, and this is something which you know, we, we have been banging on about, is you know, why don't we get more transparency from the clubs themselves because they're not publishing uh, full accounts. So therefore, you know, are they are they just claiming to be poverty stricken, um, but they're not themselves prepared to give full details as to the nature of their finances? Um, the PFA also says it would discourage investment. Uh, by potential new owners who wouldn't be able to go into a club, uh, spend money on it in terms of you know, signing players on big wages and taking the clubs forwards. Um, so in, in general, they, they're clearly unhappy about this. And it looks like it's going to be a spat between the PFA and the EFL, or rather, perhaps we should say another spat between the PFA yeah, yeah. and the EFL. Yeah, I, I, th- I think it's fair to say that if your Uncle Terry uh, was still with us, he would probably find some imaginative financial ways to sort Mirror all out, I'm guessing. Uh, um, and by, when I say Uncle Terry's not still with us, I mean he's, he's died. He's not in Parkhurst. But, um, uh, but it does lead us nicely into the reason we're here, which is questions. As I get quite confusionated when we do news stories on questions day. But, but the first question is from Andrew Watt, and it's about the salary cap. And you've mentioned the, the, the figures in the Championship and who complies in the Championship. But Andrew Watt is more interested in League One and League Two. Uh, as you said, 2.5 million potential salary cap in League One, 1.25 million in League Two. Andrew wants to know who the winners and losers in those divisions would be and how many clubs are complying with those figures in those leagues. Um, well, the losers would be the players. Um, uh, right, yeah, okay, fair enough. So uh, you know, the winners would be would be the owners. Would it, would it increase the, the chances of fewer clubs going into insolvency? Yes, it would. The, the average uh, wage bill in, uh, in League One at present is £7.5 Now, that, that is skewed a bit by having Sunderland in that division. But yeah, yeah. E- even so, if, if you took Sunderland out, I think we'd still be looking at around about 55 to £6 in, uh in League One. In League Two, the average for the clubs that do publish wage information, and remember, over half of them don't, uh, the average wage bill there was 3.4 million compared to uh, a capped figure of 1.25. Now, remember that the, the, the wage bills that we are seen being quoted are for the whole club, and I think that the caps that the EFL are perhaps referring to are for playing staff only. But you and I have both discussed this on, on a few occasions that sometimes you know what goes into the players pot and the non players pot yeah. can be a little bit uh, a little bit grey yes yeah yeah we talked about in potential kit men i think andrew was probably referring to which clubs would be winners and losers rather than whether it's players and and uh, owners i mean i mean uh, how, well perhaps it's best to answer that question from andrew by saying how many clubs in league 1 and league 2 are within that figure at the moment well none I think Accrington in League One will be close to it. Um, and that's probably about it as, as far as I can make out. But so from, from in, the, it, sorry, in which case, who is, who's come up with these figures then? Has somebody worked out that these would be the most likely figures to keep clubs solvent? I mean, these again, are these just, we've talked recently about plucking finger, you know, think fingers. I've caught it from you now, Ken. I was a perfectly articulate broadcaster until about 10 minutes ago. Um, we talked about the EFL plucking figures from a random number generator. I mean, is this, is this what's happened again? Well, it, it could be that they've tried to work out, they've, they've looked at the collective losses 
Um, so in League One, the clubs lost £46 million between them last season, um, and, and only five clubs out of 24 made a profit. Um, so perhaps they've taken the total wage bill, worked out how much if we knocked off £46 million, and that works out as an average wage bill of £2.5 million that would be our target. Um, but uh, it, it's going to cause huge issues for those clubs that have um, players who are on you know, two- or three-year contracts yeah, at amounts which would bust, bust those budgets. And, and as we both know, um, I, I think we would have a, a real legal minefield under those circumstances. And what's, I mean, what's fascinating, I mean, so there's current, of, of the 71 clubs uh, outside the Premier League currently until Barrow comes in, of those 71 clubs, only four of them are actually complying with those, with the figures for the salary caps in the chat. And that's, that leaves a lot of clubs with a lot of problems, doesn't it, as you say? And I mean, has, has anyone talked about a timescale for this to be implemented? Was that, would clubs have three years in which to implement the salary cap? Because they wouldn't be able to do it immediately, would they, because of those contracts? Well, I agree with you entirely. Um, it would have to be a, a, a graduated introduction of the rules because otherwise it, clubs would be in breach of breach of contract with players or they'd have to get rid of the players uh, effectively on freeze, which isn't in their interests. You know, ultimately, you know, we're all here as football fans and... I'm not sure that, that fans are particularly bothered if if the wage bills are high, if the club gets promoted, and you've got an owner who's who's willing to back that. So, yeah, uh, it, trying to work out the logic behind all of this, uh, you know, sa- salary caps working in closed leagues where there's there's no alternative. So that's why it works in the NFL and the NBA. Um, it's it's far more complex. Um, when you've got issues of promotion and relegation. And also, if you take a look at that uh, that uh, average wage bill of £18 million, um, being set in the championship, um, it's it's around about £160 million in, uh, in the Premier League. So you're not going to attract good players to the championship who can then move up. Um, and that means sort of the, the yo-yo effect could be accelerated as a result of this. Now, uh, just briefly, because as you know, my job on this show is professional idiot. Um, for those people who are uh, working on the same level of intellectual uh, financial accountancy as I, why is it why is it more sensible? Why do salary caps work in the, in the NFL and NBA rather than in the Premier League? Um, because the players have got nowhere else to go. Right. You know, if, if you're playing in the NFL and you're not happy with your salary, um, salary you, you don't really have much of a choice when you're traded to begin with. Um, but uh, if 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 you are unhappy with your salary in the championship, you can go and play in Belgium. You can go and play in France. So right. un- unless yeah. that unless that cap is going to be across you know the whole of Europe. Um, then it could lead to a talent drain. That's certainly what we have seen in the uh, Aviva Premiership in rugby. Uh, lots of players have, have left playing uh, club rugby in England to go and play in France, where where there wasn't a uh, salary cap. You know, I think uh, you know many England players included um, um, until the, the the English rugby union said, "Well, if you go abroad, you can't play for us," which just seems equally churlish. Okay, well, Guy, our producer, seems to have been taking the efficiency pills this week because the next question actually follows on from the one we just had. So that's two questions in a row that follow on, which is an unprecedented level of organisational skill for this pod. Um, It's a question from Liam Jones. Basically, Liam says, could you talk, as you have done a little bit, um, 
in that salary crack question. Could you talk about the difference in finances between clubs in League One? Uh, because there is a vast discrepancy in, in some of the size of those clubs. And Liam asks, as a Shrewsbury Town fan, uh, and for the benefit of the edit, Liam asks, as a Shrewsbury Town fan, who is led to believe that he should be quite proud of it, of how his club is run financially. Also, he should be quite proud of the fact that it's the, it's the club with the only Latin chant when Shrewsbury fans start singing Salop, Salop. That always makes me laugh. Um, so, first of all, are Shrewsbury Town uh, a financially raw one club? Uh, and secondly, talk a little bit about the discrepancy between, as you said, you've got Sunderland in that division and you've got much, much smaller clubs. Um, yeah, Shre- Shrewsbury are an uh, extremely well-run club. They've been profitable for the last four years. I don't think there's many clubs in the lower two divisions that can say that with the same degree of pride. Um, and, and therefore, um, I think they've very much a template. When, when I've spoken to uh, executives from other clubs, they say, what they want to be is Rotherham or Burton or Shrewsbury, um, because I think those clubs are sort of you know laid laid a laid a path for showing that you can be financially sustainable, uh, you can break even every year. The owners not having to put money in, yeah. and, and at the same time, you know they've they've got into the playoffs. They they've done pretty well, and their their development of players has been excellent as well. Um, which which it encourages more players to sign for them because they see them as a pathway to uh, improving their careers as well. That's interesting. So how would that compare to a Sunderland, for example, in that division? Well, if you take a look at uh, at Shrewsbury, their income was five and a half million pounds last season. Sunderland's was 59. Wow. So yeah, they're a tenth of the size. Um, now, Sunderland did have the benefit of some parachute payments, but even so, uh, you know, Shrewsbury are you know, bottom half in terms of income generating, and, and that's you know that division next season. You, you'll again have Ipswich and Portsmouth, mm. Shrewsbury. You know, potentially Charlton could be back down there again. Yeah. You know, there's there's some pretty decent sized clubs with Hol- decent yeah. sized followings. Bolton, Shrewsbury, yeah, yeah. Um, so. Uh, yeah, you know, it, it'll be it'll be an interesting division, as as they all are. But it, but it's going to be tough for for a club of Shrewsbury to compete. But you've got to give them credit for doing so. Remember, they held uh, Liverpool to a two all draw yeah. this season in the FA Cup. So so they're clearly no mugs on the pitch as well. Yeah, you sounded confused there, Kieran. Before anyone tweets, I know Hull City and Middlesbrough are in the Championship, but they're in danger of relegation to League One. So that's my point. There's going to be some big clubs down there. Now, you'll like this question, uh, Kieran, because it's a very nice, specific... Neither of us could do words again this morning. This is ludicrous. (laughs) Uh, A nice, specific question for you. Um, Now, Tony McNeary says, according to Manchester United's third-quarter results... See, you've got all sorts of people looking out for third-quarter results now. Man United said the postponement of their away game against Spurs cost them £4 million in lost revenue. And basically, Tony wants to know... How? Because United wouldn't have shared in any gate receipts, would they? So how was it? How is it that they said that's cost them four million quid? Yeah, I, I took a look at United's third quarter result. I, I, I didn't see this myself. I think they were saying that their home games are going to cost them, on average, four million in terms of lost gate receipts. Um, as Tony correctly said, uh, under the way that uh, the the clubs agreed, and I think this is where football started to, to lose some of its magic for me, that the clubs could keep all of the home. Yeah. 
gate receipts. Uh, Spurs would certainly be in the £4 million per match bracket themselves. Right. Um, and I think Spurs will probably be hit harder than most because, remember, they've also got that NFL contract, which is now being cancelled. So that's cost them millions on top of that. They had uh, concerts planned uh, and so on. Um, but I don't think Manchester United will have lost anything um, from the that match being cancelled, apart from if they've pre-booked a, a night in a hotel and, and the hotel won't give them a refund. Um, yeah. But it, sh- it shouldn't have cost them anything more than that. Okay, we'll have another look at that, just for just for, for my sake yeah. and for Tony's sake, yeah. do have another look. Uh, and of course, if it's any consolation to Spurs, they spent all that money on those giant NFL dressing rooms. But at least they've got two tunnels. So, so in this situation, they're fine. It, it, who thought a season ago that you'd need two tunnels? Well done, Tottenham, for looking ahead. Um, Christian Booth. It's, now, Christian's got an interesting question, um, and it's something we have touched on, uh, but I think this is an interesting uh, clarification, if you like, because Christian quite rightly points out that the prospect of a European Super League is looming ever closer. How much revenue would it generate? Could it rival the NFL, for example? And would, and this is the interesting part in particular, would Premier League clubs and clubs that are in the Champions League regularly gain less than maybe sort of well-won clubs in, in Germany? So would Borussia Dortmund, say, make more money out of a Super League than Liverpool would? Or more right. extra money, uh, perhaps? Yeah. Um, a lot will depend, if the Super League does take place, as to what happens domestically. If we have a European Super League which results in Bayern, Dortmund, Manchester United, Liverpool, Chelsea, Barcelona, Real Madrid, you know, clubs of that calibre, if they if they resign their positions from the Premier League and the Bundesliga and La Liga, um, it it means that they will also lose access to the money from those leagues. And, and um, last season, the, the, the TV deal for the Premier League generated three billion sterling compared to the Champions League, 1.75. So your, your first gut reaction is, is that they wouldn't be better off financially. But clearly, and, and what we're looking at here is that the, the D-Day is 2024-25 because that's when the, the present Champions League um, format um, is up for renewal. Um, I, I would imagine that a Super League consisting solely of those clubs would be able to sell the rights for more than we're presently getting in the Premier League. The downside of that, and I think this is the, the very good point um, that's been, been raised by Christian, is um, the Premier League clubs do extremely well because they finish at the top of the Premier League. Mm. And therefore, as we know, they're going to get the lion's share of the money. There's no guarantee that Chelsea are going to finish in the top four of this Super League every year. And if the money is distributed in a similar manner to what we see at present in the Premier League, in that it's very much geared towards which position you are in the table, I mean, clearly all of those matches would be televised. I think that that's... That, that's a given, um, then it, the, the Premier League clubs, if they don't have a good season, could find themselves worse off financially, whereas a club such as Dortmund, um, the, the Bundesliga TV deal is only worth £1 billion a year. Um, I think that a club of that uh, that nature would be better off financially, um, as would uh, PSG, because the French TV deal isn't particularly lucrative. Um, so very much there would be uh, winners and losers. Um, and, and I think the biggest losers um, would be not just the Premier League clubs, which up 
and take sticks. Does that make sense? Which up and leave uh, the Premier League. Um, but also, of course, the remaining 14 clubs. But because with the best will in the world, and I know it hurts us as fans of clubs such as Palace and Brighton, it, we're not the reason why people tune in. Clubs such as Brighton, I think is what you meant to say there, Kieran. But you're you're absolutely right. I, do you know what? I, talking about fans of clubs like Palace and Brighton, I'd be interested to ask our listeners who support the Barcelonas, the Liverpools, the Real Madrids, especially the people who are in those countries, who are in you know, Spain and Italy and around the world, what, what their appetite for a European Super League is. Because it seems to me that if, if Palace, for example, were in the European Super League, once the, the novelty of that first away trip to Barcelona was worn off and you think, I've got to go there every season, and then you, you start including the trips to Dynamo Kiev because they're in the European Super League, it's, it, it's making life much more difficult for fans, isn't it? I mean, for broadcasters, it's, it's, it's absolutely perfect. For the clubs, it's absolutely perfect. For the fans, it's not so perfect. And I, I'm guessing that clubs like Barcelona and Real Madrid wouldn't worry about that because they know that they would get 3,000 tourists to fill their way end anyway if 3,000 Man United fans can't afford to go on a regular basis. Yeah, I, I agree with you entirely. But I mean, the, the attitude of the the owners towards fans has, you know, for the last twenty five years or so, is we've made a decision. Uh, grab your ankles, you know, and and that's that's about as far as it goes. There, there is no no decision. You know, no no fan ever said, wouldn't it be a great idea if Premier League football matches took place at eight o'clock on a Monday yeah. or five thirty on a Saturday. Yeah. So, you know, f- fans' views are uh, an irrelevance as far as the decision makers are concerned. Yeah, I, I get a bit confused when you say you absolutely agree with me. So I, 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 I'm always waiting for It's like when Captain Mannering, when Sergeant Wilson says he agrees with him, he looks slightly confused. Um, now, our next question is from uh, Nobby Clark. Uh, and I think I might know Nobby vaguely. I think Nobby might be a friend of a friend. He might be a friend of my mate Frank Talking. Uh, which is not his real name. His real name is Uncle Barry, but that's South London for you. Now, Nobby has um, a slightly morbid, but very, very interesting question, I think. Um, And as Nobby says, we've talked a lot about super rich owners like Abramovich on this pod, who lend clubs large sums of money, which are more often than not converted to shares or similar to avoid having to pay them back to prevent the clubs going into financial meltdown. But after the Leicester owner was killed in that terrible helicopter crash in 2018, his family were happy to continue his good work. But, says Nobby, what would happen if a club owner died and his beneficiaries decided that they they wanted to cash out, that they had no interest in football, didn't want the Premier League football club? Would or could executives be compelled to recall all loans, which... It, it, you read that question first of all, and you think, "Oh well, it's a, it's a bit specific." But it's actually quite possible, isn't it? Very much so, because if you take a look at the the value of some of the loans by owners, yeah, we are talking hundreds of millions of pounds, um, and a loan ultimately has an obligation to to the party, to the football club, um, and the, the the beneficiaries of the uh, of the estate um, could certainly call in that obligation. Um, effectively, meaning that the club would have to put it up for sale, uh, itself right. up for sale to try to find a new owner, um, and hoping that that new owner would would pay off those loans. Um, the the advantage of shares is that shares exist in perpetuity. 
um, in the sense that once the club has issued them, there is no commitment to buy them back. So we are seeing some owners um, quite regularly convert loans into shares when they feel that they, they no longer need uh, you know, the, the nuclear scenario of having at some point to demand the money back. Um, but the, the the total for um, loans from owners, uh, you know, is probably in the region of around about two billion pounds, uh, as far as Premier League clubs are concerned. And if they all ask for them back, we're certainly my club, Brighton. But yeah, the club can't afford to pay it back to the owner. Uh, Chelsea can't afford to play back Abramovich. Um, I would even warrant that, that Newcastle would would struggle to repay. Um, the £111 million back to Mike Ashley. And, you know, we don't know what's happening with that deal at present. So, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a concern. Um, you know, it, there's asking for money back and, and there's being able to pay it back. And, and of course, you, you have to do the sort of the corporate equivalent of sending the boys round, which would be to, to appoint an administrator. And, and you know from, from your experiences, that's, that's unpleasant for everybody concerned. It, it increases uncertainty. Uh, it means that there's job losses. So you've just got to hope that owners, and, and there's no evidence that this would be the case, um, owners seem to be aware of that. Owners' descendants, you're never quite sure. But I, I'm surely, I mean, with the figures involved, I mean, these these people are, are high-powered businessmen. They, they've got high-powered, as you say, silver-tongued friends. Would would not some provision be made for that? I mean, these, these people will have resolved what will happen to their money after their death, presumably, wouldn't they? These, I mean, these are not... These are not the sort of people who are going to forget to, to sort of put something in the will about the loan they've made to the club. Well, you, you would hope so, uh, but that could be contested um, by uh, one of the beneficiaries of the will. Right, OK. OK, that's, good. that's a good question, Nobby. And our next question is, I believe, our first question from Saudi Arabia. It's from Farhad Al-Qadi. Uh, apologies if I pronounce that wrongly, uh, Farhad. Uh, if I did, I've just done it again. And also apologies if it's not the first question from Saudi Arabia. Basically, as soon as we finish these pods, they're gone. Uh, they, they don't lodge in my mind. So uh, but I think it is our first question from Saudi Arabia. And uh, it's a good question, albeit it, it got my blood up because Farhad's question is, how do you see the Premier League uh, as a product post-Brexit? Uh, would a no-deal Brexit affect the league and its overseas value? How could the league protect its value? Now, obviously, uh, as a public service broadcaster, um, we can have no opinion on Brexit as such, but it turns out we're not a public service broadcaster, so I think Brexit's a terrible idea. No-deal Brexit, even worse. Although I do acknowledge it could be good for young British players. Um, uh, so... Uh, <laughs> My wife Ali is a bit annoyed with fire because I was in a perfectly good mood this morning until I saw this question and it started me off about Brexit again. Um, so, let's, so anyway, we're not a public service broadcaster, although we've got the budget of one, so perhaps we should stay neutral. But <laughs> uh, sorry, sorry for the rant, Farhad. That's kind of there's a long gap between your question and, and the answer now. So uh, basically, how would a No Deal Brexit affect the, the Premier League? I think it would be relatively unaffected. Um, most of the value in the Premier League, whether and this sort of just follows on from what we've been talking about, um, comes from the big six clubs. They get 73% of matchday income. They've got 80% of commercial income. Um, they, they, they grumble that they only get 45% of broadcasting. So that's why they're, they're trying to uh, adjust for that. So 
those clubs are going to be the clubs which are going to be least affected by the uh, by the tariffs and by the the complications in terms of recruitment when we move to a points based system for recruitment of staff i, I think it is the mid tier clubs uh, it is the other 14 clubs in the in the premier league um who are recruiting from from Belgium, from Germany, from from Italy, and so on, for for players who are um, not necessarily internationals, but they're still good players, and those players are going to um, find it more difficult to be deemed to have sufficient points to be able to play for the club, and therefore um, th- there's there's going to be less diversity in in terms of recruitment for again you know, the likes of Bournemouth, Watford, Palace, Brighton, and so on. Yeah. Um, the big six clubs are signing internationals. So therefore, I I can't see a problem for them. Um, If we're honest about the value of the Premier League, it comes from the big six. So as as it's the big six clubs which generate the eyeballs for TV viewers, it's the big six, and they do that both in the UK and overseas, it's the big six clubs which generate the big contracts for the commercial sponsors um, I, I see that being unaffected. It certainly could be far more affected by COVID than it is by Brexit. Um, my, my conclusion would be that uh, the overall value of the Premier League is unlikely to fall. OK, that's interesting. Although, as I say, we do have to acknowledge that for, for young British players, it could be a good thing. But um, that's an interesting uh, question, Farhad. Thank you for that. Now, we, we've got a little... Um, how can I put it? I was going to say post-mortem. We've got a little post-match story uh, to finish the pod with, but that's after our last question. And our last question is from Edward Layton. And, you know, like a lot of things I hear on this pod, uh, initially, Kieran, I saw this question when it was sent through by, by Guy, and it's it's on the cusp. It's of genius and idiot, basically, like a lot of things on this on this pod. And I've come down on the side of genius because um, Edward Layton has, has got an idea. And his idea is for saving the FA Cup. And, you know, God knows the FA Cup does need something to get us all interested again. We know we've talked long and hard about the the fading appeal of the FA Cup to a younger audience of football fans in in particular. But Edward's idea is this. Finish the league season earlier, get that out of the way, and then play all rounds of the FA Cup over consecutive weeks from March through to the final in May. Now, he wants to know whether that would financially make any sense. I mean... Initially, I didn't think it made any sense football-wise, but I'd, I quite like the idea until inevitably, of course, Palace are knocked out in the in the third round and you, you lose all interest again, which is essentially what what's happening to the FA Cup. The reason it's tarnished is because we can't win it anymore. Clubs like, well, we couldn't win it anyway, nor could Brighton, but you know what I'm saying. Well, I, th- I think this one is, is intriguing and it's got both pluses and minuses. Part of the reason why the FA Cup has lost its appeal is that you and I both know that when our sides play in the third round of the FA Cup, we're going to put out the substitutes bench, plus some of the youth team and so on. Now, if the season ends in March, at the end of March, and we know what our league position is, then the manager doesn't have to worry about, well, I need to give the players a rest for the FA Cup because that season's gone. So therefore, from a competitive point of view, I think it would make the FA Cup more appealing because Palace would put out their first team. Yeah. Because the players have got nothing else to do. um, 
the, the the part of the reason why clubs are putting out their um their their their, their weakened 11s is because the prize money in the premier league is so incredible. Yeah, we, we've often spoken about it's now worth two and a half million pounds per additional place. You get an extra one point eight million for winning the the FA Cup. Now, yeah, that's that. So the the losers get one point eight and the winners get three point six. Um, so you can see that if we get to the end of March, we we know what our positions are. Um, we can now go go forward to the FA Cup, and I, and I think it would certainly provide more focus for fans. Um, what, however, would be the case if your club had just been relegated for the pre- from the Premier League and now they've got the prospect of having to play in the FA Cup? You know, will the players be bothered? Will the fans actually care? Um, th- that's, that's another issue. Um, and I think from a planning point of view, it, it might give us uh, a few problems. Um, you know, you, you and I, we both love football, the fact it, it is effectively you know, 10 months of the year yeah. for us. Yeah. Um, if we if we play the the Premier League to towards the end of March and we get knocked out in the third round, mm. that's it. Yeah. You know, we, we, and you know, with with the best will in the world, you know, when my club's out, I, I lose interest as a fan yeah. until perhaps it gets to the semi finals. Yeah. Um, so it wouldn't necessarily be good from a fan's point of view because then you've got April, May, June. You know, you, you could have effectively an eight month season, and, and perhaps that would actually be good for us. You know, perhaps, perhaps I shouldn't be so obsessed by football um, and I should spend more time with the Baroness and, and, and so on. Um, but uh, there's a, there, I, think it's got, I think it's an intriguing idea. I think it's got both pluses and minuses. Um, but in terms of making the FA Cup more competitive, I think it's a stroke of genius. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. I said it was on the genius lunacy cusp. And so you've come down for genius as well. You, you could, of course... Um, Spend more time with the Baroness by watching football with her. Uh, yes, I could do. I guess, uh, but she does. She has. She has got a season ticket. She, <laughs> she does sit next to me at home games. Oh, I know. I know what you got her for Christmas. Don't. That's fine. Um, now, finally, to end this uh, masterclass of mispronunciation that we've had for the last forty-five minutes, um, we have a little story for you. Which consider this as a little treat. This is a consider this as a, a little digestif, if you like, or digestif, if you prefer. This is a free. This is a free calvados on the house after the end of the meal, just to just to help things go down a little bit. Now, because a lot of clubs, as we know, Kieran, think outside the box in order to raise money. So you've got your official drinks partners or mattress partners or are proud to be linked with Malaysia's finest coffin maker. Um, and it's just occurred to me that I shouldn't have chosen mattress partner as an example with you around because it will <laughs> almost inevitably lead into a story. But one team in the NFL have, have really used their imagination there and, and thought properly outside the box, haven't they? Yes, it's the San Francisco 49ers, um, and they have got an official under-the-waist sponsor in the form of a company called Manscape. Um, so I, I had to Google this, and apparently this is, a, uh, this is one of these shaving devices for men um, who want to, to tone their, their, their nether region. So you could say it's, it's a ball sponsor um, of sorts. Um, but so, uh, well, you, you could say, Kieran, if you're a cricket fan, they're thinking inside the box. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, but it's uh, it's it's showing that that uh, 
the, the commercial departments are prepared to to sign a deal with with practically everyone. Um, I don't know how they're going to do the advertising campaigns for it, um, but but I'll leave it to them. But from from a football uh, perspective, you know, we, we are seeing clubs these days. Uh, have tie-ups with the likes of Nivea and Gillette and so on, and in terms of men's grooming products. Mm. Um, so, you know, those have concentrated above the waist. So is this a lost opportunity for clubs in the Premier League? Well, my worry is, to, you talk about how they're going to advertise it. If, if, if even a man of the world like you is reluctant to use the, the words pubic hair and, and search for a euphemism, then it's going to be difficult for them to advertise. And also, you know, the other thing that worries me is that I do make notes for this this pod uh, beforehand, and as we do, I jot some notes down as we're talking. I'm, I'm just worried now that Ali will come out and see the words Calvados and pubic hair question mark <laughs> written, written on a piece of paper and wonder what's going on. So, I mean, it's I mean, good for them, but as you, as you say, I mean, the, yeah, we we see we see footballers regularly. We see Premier League footballers on on TV adverts combing their hair and, and shaving. Uh, I, some are we looking forward to some unlucky 49ers player being being shown on primetime television manscaping as you as you so politely put it uh, well I think there will be a few people tuning in just out of curiosity uh, if, if that does take place uh, I mean I I, I used to uh, I, I used to be a barman in a, in a club called the pink coconut in Brighton uh, back in the early eighties, and uh, my friend Clifford, who was uh, Clifford, Clifford had an, a rather unhealthy interest in me, given that I was underage at the time. Um, he said to me, "No matter what you do to testicles, ultimately you can never make them attractive." So, uh, yeah, I think there will be a challenge for uh, for uh, this from a, from a commercial and advertising perspective. Well, yes, as uh, to, to quote my friend Arthur Smith, the, the trouble with testicles is that they always look twenty years older than the rest of you, didn't they? So, um, I, I, I've, do you know? I, I think I should have got looked at more details of this question before we actually got into it, Kieran. Um, but it, it's it's bright in the mood, isn't it? And I notice we pronounced every word correctly in this story, so that's all it takes to grab our attention is basically a story. <laughs> um, uh, thank you for your questions this week. They've all been, as usual, uh, fascinating, and they always lead us into great conversations. Uh, if you have a question for us, um, questions at priceoffootball.com is where you need to send it. We'll be back on Thursday when I guarantee one of our stories will be about the revelations over agents' fees in the Premier League, and we will be spending the next couple of days trying to find an agent who's going to be happy to talk about how much money they're taking out of the game. Um, in the meantime, we enjoy what football we have coming up, FA Cup games uh, today, because we're recording this on a Sunday afternoon because of Kieran's incredible broadcasting schedule, um, Palace Burnley tomorrow night. Um, we will talk again on Thursday. Kieran, take care. Pleasure as always. Thank you. Stay safe, boys and girls. Bye, everybody. The price of football. I'm for the